Today we're talking about Mark chapter 8. So let's go to the Word and read it together. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them on hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. After the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over, about 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanthua. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. He said them, He said to them, Do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then, he, then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go to the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. <clears throat> but what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. <clears throat> he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, Get behind me, Satan. He said, You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. 
Mark chapter 8 is a very interesting passage. We see here right off the bat what seems to be a repeat of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. But there are a few differences here. To the critics who say this is um, talking about the same event and maybe it got incorporated twice, I say there's a lot of evidence against that. First, Mark would have known his source material. We think it was Peter. We think Peter is the source for much of Mark because of all of the references to Peter within Mark. And we see that here too. The feeding of the groups here happens what probably is in a different region. It has a different number of people who are recorded to have been there. And it has a different dialogue that happened following it. Here again, we see the crowds gathering to listen to Jesus. They have nothing to eat, but he has compassion on them. First, I want to point out this is fairly rare in the New Testament, in the Gospels, for Jesus to admit that he has compassion. Now, of course, we know he has compassion. And there are times when um, the text refers to his compassion many, many times that he has compassion on people. That is, that is no question that happens. But here Jesus himself is saying, I have compassion on these people. And we know that our Savior, uh, although he is our Lord, he is also our Savior, and he cares a great deal for us. Well, he didn't want these people to go hungry, so he gives them something to eat. And again, we see kind of a repetition here. <clears throat> Another thing I want to point out is, if you, uh, if you think about Jesus and his ministry going on for several years in Israel, this is a time before Twitter, before television, before the internet, before newspapers. Many people who saw Jesus often saw him for the first time, and every day Jesus saw new people. And he would tell the gospel to them. He would tell the parables. He would tell them stories. You have to imagine that Many of the uh, stories and, and sayings and truths of the word of God that he's saying would be repeated almost daily so that new people could hear the word that, who hadn't heard it before. And people who were hearing it could get it reinforced. A wise person once said to me that a human has to be told something seven times before they remember it and understand it. Well, I think for my children, it's more than that. But I think it drives home the point Jesus' own disciples, having witnessed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, are still confused. They're still struggling with their faith. And here again, you see, we're out of food. What are we going to do? It's kind of like a repeat. Jesus is very patient with us, and he takes his time with us to help us patiently grow as disciples. And it takes time. And we, with 2020 vision, can look at the disciples or even other Christians in our lives and be like, why are you so dumb? Don't you get it? But uh, I was in that situation. I continue to learn and be a disciple of Jesus. I think we need to have patience with others and model good behavior, carefully repeat what uh, God has told us, and, and just see that it takes time for some people, sometimes even decades, for this to sink in. Well, this is a different miracle here for another reason. It may have happened in Gentile territory. <clears throat> The feeding of the 5,000 almost certainly happened in um, a Jewish region called Galilee. Uh, But this may have been a Gentile region with people who are hearing the gospel. In fact, the whole truth of the Judeo-Christian religion for the very first time. Uh, This follows, of course, chapter 7, where Jesus tells a... uh, probably a Gentile woman, a Syrio-Phoenician woman, that the gospel is for her and Gentiles as well, meaning non-Jewish people. So it doesn't surprise us that Jesus follows up that, um, that message with now a miracle to show the Gentiles that uh, his salvation and the fruits of his um, good word are for them as well. Okay, 
The next thing we see here is the Pharisees challenging Jesus for a sign. I want to make a comment about this. I think if you ever struggled with your faith, and I did tremendously uh, earlier in my life, one of the key things that someone with kind of a bitter heart does is say, okay, fine, God, if you're real, prove it to me. Show me a sign. Show me a miracle. Appear in front of me. I think it's very important to continue to point out that Jesus did not perform miracles for people who had bitter and angry hearts. One of the reasons is because he did miracles for people who did believe, and the people who had the bitter hearts were not convinced. So the point here is that even if Jesus were to perform a miracle, it may not have made much of a difference with them. Um, asking for a magic trick is not the same as humbly and um, with a good heart coming to Jesus and saying, I think I believe, I help me to believe. And that's what's happening here. The Pharisees are very caustic, they're very hostile to Jesus, and they're just looking for an excuse to kind of, you know, essentially put him away permanently. And he's not going to fall for the bait. If you think about Herod, when Jesus is on trial, he gets uh, paraded before Herod, and Herod himself says, why don't you do a magic trick for us? You know, show us a miracle. Tell us who you are. And Jesus doesn't say anything to him. So I think that point is very important here. But as is also important here in the narrative, Jesus goes back and forth between teaching about a principle or a parable, um, and then following that up with a miracle, a physical kind of explanation of what he's talking about here. Here, we're seeing the so-called yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. Remember, we just had a miracle where Jesus <clears throat> multiplied bread for thousands of people who were following him. That was an act to provide the daily provisions for those people so he can make a connection with them. Jesus has compassion on us. He wants to provide our daily needs for us. He wants us to ask him for our daily needs. What happens is, especially in this culture, as a quick step back, the Roman Empire was becoming very, uh, it had just become an empire essentially just a few decades before this, um, this happened here with Jesus. Uh, it was starting to become a welfare state. And it was becoming the kind of place where the uh, empire was trying to promise welfare and free bread and essentially perks to the people to keep them happy, to keep them docile so that they wouldn't revolt and they could stay in power. The problem is that came with a very big cost. Um, by, by taking on that bread and saying, I'm going to rely on the government or the empire or Herod to supply my daily needs, what happens? Well, you don't need Jesus anymore. You don't need God. The government will take care of me. Jesus will take care of me. And again, I'm not making a political statement here. I'm making a biblical statement. Jesus is specifically saying here, don't rely on man for your daily provisions. Rely on God. In fact, don't even rely on yourself. Because once you start to do that, it's a slippery slope in which your self-reliance becomes your God or becomes your idol. Now here too, we see the connection between the miracle of bread and the yeast. Again, yeast used to make bread. The yeast of the Pharisees is used in two different ways in the New Testament. One is a very bad way to say the Pharisees are like a yeast, which is for all intents and purposes invisible. It works its way through uh, the, the flour and it uh, slowly uh, you know, produces carbon dioxide and breaks down some of the starches into sugars to make bread. 
You can't see yeast when it's working. You can see the bread, but you can't see the yeast. And it spreads. It's a microorganism. And it uh, multiplies. And that is the negative connotation that Jesus is using here to talk about the yeast of the Pharisees. It's silent. It's subversive. It's, um, it's veiled. It's somewhat hidden. But it starts to spread in a very negative way to affect lots of people. The other way that the New Testament talks about yeast is in a very positive way when we talk about, essentially, the yeast of Jesus and the new kingdom. Remember, who is Jesus for the disciples of the New Testament and, in fact, for um, um, all of the Jews of the first century? The Messiah is a military ruler in the template of King David, who is a human who comes back to conquer Israel's enemies, reestablish the throne of David, and establish a new kingdom. The disciples still don't get that Jesus is not that military conqueror yet. That Jesus has come to bring a gospel of, of uh, renewal, of regeneration, and transformation. And so Jesus is trying to continue to say, look, I am not the Messiah you think I am. I'm much better. But they still don't get it. One of those uh, aspects is that they continue to take the yeast or the teachings of the Pharisees and believe them. And the Pharisees, of course, believed that the Messiah would be this this military conqueror. He would wipe out the Romans and and vanquish their enemies. And that is another thing that Jesus is trying to point out here, that that is not what he is coming to do. The other piece here is to kind of clarify, and and Jesus does this, he clarifies, who am I to you, the disciples? Well, I don't think that they are wrong in saying, we think you are the Messiah. Again, the Christ, Christos, the Greek means Messiah, the Savior, right? You are the anointed one, the one who will be um, essentially crowned as the ruler of the Jews. He asks this of his disciples and Peter's confession because he wants to get at the root of it. He wants Peter to admit he thinks Jesus is the so-called Messiah. But in the very next passage, he is going to, again, root out the misconceptions that the disciples and Peter have. Because what happens? Immediately, he starts telling them, well, okay, I'm glad that you think I'm the Messiah, but guess what? I am going to be paraded in front of the um, the, uh, Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Well, so Peter's response is exactly what you would expect. He takes Jesus aside after hearing this and rebukes him. Well, from Peter's point of view, he's thinking that Jesus is maybe out of his mind, kind of like his family thought earlier. Jesus, you're not right. You're going to be the king, and you're going to take the throne back, and you're going to conquer our enemies. And oh, by the way, me and our friends are going to be the king's court. We're going to be exalted, and we're going to be your right and left-hand guys. So this explains Peter taking Jesus aside, and it also explains Jesus' response. Jesus, very angrily looking at all of the disciples while saying this to Peter, says, Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus is the Messiah who has come to bring the gospel to the world of transformation. He is not a military ruler, at least not right now. And so uh, what he wants is people to stop thinking of themselves and how exalted they're going to be and how awesome this train is going to be. It's actually very different. This is going to be a long game. This is going to be a very different game than they were expecting. And Jesus is rightfully saying, stop thinking about yourselves. Start listening to my message. 
let's just take a couple more looks here at, at uh, Mark 8. Um, when, when it says this generation, uh, earlier we're going to back up again and say, you know, this generation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, you know, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? Here, you know, I think Jesus is talking about in the Greek and, of course, the Aramaic. They both kind of mean the race, a group of people. <clears throat> I think what he's saying is this group of people who is um, denying me, who is attacking me, and have this hardened heart, That's it's not like these people over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, even today, that same generation exists, if you want to think of it that way, the people who doubt and hate God and hate Jesus uh, for who he is um, and resist uh, the transforming power that Jesus has in their lives. I think the blind man incident is very interesting. Um, here again, we have this idea of the disciples being spiritually blind, and then immediately Jesus goes and performs a physical miracle of healing a blind man. Again, the, the Gospels are very clear that Jesus did this. He would preach about something, and then he would perform a miracle. And they were always tied together. Um, and Jesus used miracles not just to glorify himself, but to make a point about his teaching and to kind of bring it out into the light. Um, so here the blind man um, is going to be healed. And again, we see this, this, this kind of two-stage healing that happens. And people go, why did he have to uh, have, you know, kind of this, he gets healed halfway, he starts to see trees. By the way, if the man knows what trees look like, maybe he had sight earlier in his life, because, you know, if he was blind from birth, he wouldn't know what a tree looks like walking around, so to speak. Um, and then he has the second healing. This happens uh, before in the gospel. And the point here, I think, is that, you know, for some people, their faith takes a while to take hold and take root. Again, this is the different difference between this blind man who has a good heart, but he wants to believe, and the Pharisees who have a very bad heart, they don't want to believe, and they want to reject Jesus. So the blind man who has a little bit of faith, maybe he's doubting, but he has an open heart and an open mind, he does get healed, and he gets to um, partake in the, the fruits of the gospel that Jesus is providing here. Uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, we talked about the feeding of the 4,000. Again, this is, this is more of a, a demonstration for the Gentiles. In this case, uh, the number of baskets is different. The first time it was 12 baskets. Of course, you could make the connection there to the 12 um, tribes of Israel. Here, there's seven baskets, so it's different. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and again, talking about the, the surplus, I think this is a point that should be well taken. In both of the miracles of the feeding of the multitudes, there was an abundance of food left over at the end. I think what God is trying to communicate through his word here is that when you depend on God for your daily provisions, he oversupplies in abundance what you need and there will always be some left over. I think that is an important point to remember. And it's also important to remember that we're talking about our daily needs, not necessarily our wants. So just because I ask for that new Lexus or that new Mercedes doesn't mean I need it. He might supply it, but I think what he's talking about here is depend on me for the things that you need physically, food, shelter, um, the uh, social needs like companionship, love, brotherhood, friendship, and of course, most of all, salvation, joy, peace, transformation, depend on God for those very basic human needs, and he will provide them in abundance. I can speak from experience here. He does. He does provide those things in tremendous abundance. Every Christian I have met who is truly saved has the same story. All of us 
will report that we have been transformed by believing in God and relying on him for what we need. Um, And so I think that really kind of sums it up. Uh, I think next time when we talk about uh, Mark chapter 9, we're going to move right into um, some uh, interesting parts here that continue this narrative of who is the Messiah and what is this generation and, uh, and, you know, this generation and what kind of signs are they going to see that Jesus is who he says he is. So join us next time when we talk about Mark chapter 9.